Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. This is episode number 118. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu, Malkinu, our Father, our King. Bless you, Lord, for the wonderful things that you're doing for us and through us, uh, especially in our communities and around the world. We continue to thank you for your protection and for your provision uh, during these difficult times. During a pandemic, it's hard to um, always see the good around us. There's so much bad happening around us, uh, so much evil, so much danger. And yet, we have got to discipline ourselves to stop and recognize who you are and what you are doing uh, for us and through us. And uh, your protection, your hand of guidance, um, your, your, your spirit of provision um, providing for us uh, when uh, so many of us are, are out of job, furloughed, unemployed, um, things like that. Um, Lord, just continue to draw us close to you in a sense of, 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 um, of intimacy helping us to realize and, and prioritize what is most important, helping us to see that in your word, in, in the, the, the Bibles that we carry, that there are promises that are true, they're trustable, they're reliable. And we need to take those words and hide them in our hearts so that it's it's not the political um, uh, uh, views around us that are swaying our opinions. It's not the social um, uprisings. It's not the, 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 the racial tensions. It's not all of the, uh, the religious confusion. That, those aren't the voices that we're going to listen to first and foremost. We need to decide in and of ourselves that we are going to listen to your voice first. And so in order to do that, we've got to be led by the objective words that you left for us, uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to help us focus on the Master Messiah Yeshua himself. Give us a sense of purpose. Uh, thank you for this um, opportunity to share my thoughts with the students via the vehicle of YouTube, uh, podcasting, the written commentaries, and things like that. I, I count it a privilege to be able to fellowship with people around the world week after week. Bless them where they're at. Protect them. Provide for them. Raise them up. Give them a voice. Help them to be witnesses, salt and light in this very, very dark world. And we'll continue to bless you and to give you the praise and glory of Yeshua, Amen.
Thank you, everyone, for joining me week after week during these live internet studies. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi, and I am a Torah teacher at a congregation in Thornton, Colorado called The Harvest. If you're looking at my screen right now on this YouTube video, then you see I've got my website, I've got The Harvest website pulled up. The address is www.graftedin.com. Visit us on the web and join us for our live streaming, which you can see right now on the right side of the screen. We've got a picture of a, of a YouTube uh, thumbnail there. We are live streaming only, so do not come and meet us. Uh, we're trying to abide by, abide by state guidelines and, and, and stay in place and, and not meet with people until uh, otherwise uh, instructed to do so. But we'd love to have you join us during our live streaming services. I've got my own website as well at Tetsay Torah. Um, uh, Tate Torah Ministries is my personal ministry. TateTorah.com is my home website, and this is what the home page looks like. If you ever visit, have a chance to visit my own website, uh, the address is www.TateTorah.com. It's spelled T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H dot and as you can see from this cluster of links right here on your screen, I've got lots to offer there. Just uh, have at it. It's there for the taking. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, studying. Don't Please don't take my things without asking me. <laughs> please don't steal from me. Uh, but no, seriously, um, uh, I write my commentaries and record my commentaries and upload videos and things like that podcast um, for you. And I'm blessed to be a blessing to uh, the community around me. We have live internet studies. Let me jump over to the live internet studies. Um, we have live internet studies, and as I mentioned earlier, this is episode number 118, so we've been going for quite a while. We meet each Saturday evening. Today's date for the recording is December 5th, 2020. We meet each Saturday evening from 7 p.m. to approximately 8 p.m. Sometimes we go a little over. There are two segments in our hour-long study. The first 30-minute segment is given over to Romans 14 Unplugged, Feast and Fast and Food, Oh My, or in Part 37. The second segment is given to uh, Exploring the Shema. It's a discussion on the issues of Trinity series. There are three papers, and we're in Paper 2, Yahweh and Yeshua, Part 54, tonight. There's a selected featured YouTube video that we're going to watch tonight, only one. It's from my short question, short answer live series that I did a few years back, uh, entitled, What Does the Bible Mean When It Says the Spirit Brooded? Or Spirit Hovered, or something like that. These questions were taken from my um, ebible.com question and answer series that I put together, about 80 or so questions, which are available on my website, right, if you go to uh, tatesitor.com and uh, click on the um, short question, short answers link right there from the home screen that you can see my mouse hovering over right now, then uh, uh, you can browse through all the different uh, questions there. But for now, um, if you'd like to join us during the live Skype uh, studies, um, you're just going to basically need Skype on your computer. That's primary. If you have a Skype account, that's great too. Actually, you don't really need Skype app installed, but you do need access to Skype, and the browser is the easiest way to do that, um, especially if you're on a computer or desktop, laptop, something like that. Other types of devices, smartphones, uh, uh, Android devices, iPads, uh, smartwatches, all of the like, um, you might need to install an app, and you might need to create an account, but both of those are free, so you don't have to worry. The main thing you're going to need is the Skype group link, and as I always mentioned, the easiest way to get the group link is to... Um, uh, ask a friend, right? No, seriously, the easiest way to get the group link is to go to my website, tasetor.com, 
and scroll to the very bottom of the web page. And from the bottom down there, you'll see a little icon. Let me point it out right there. That's the email. Send me an email telling me you'd like to join the Skype uh, classes. I'd be more than happy to send you the link. It's free. There's no cost to you. And uh, it's exclusive to the Skype uh, participants that we uh, engage in question and answer and just chatting and praying and laughing and, and all of that after the study. So if that's something you like to engage in, then join us each week live and uh, you can share your thoughts with me and with the rest of the students that join us live each week. And as always, take notice of the little yellow donate button down there. If my ministry is a blessing to you and you have the um, ability to bless me in return, I'm speaking, of course, financially, well, then this is a way that you can help support not just my ministry, but right now you can help support me as a teacher. And uh, this is a great way to uh, to do so uh, securely um, using uh, PayPal and a credit card or bank account or something like that. That's linked to PayPal. So um, uh, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. All right. Let's turn now to the uh, short little video. It's just to fire it up and watch it. And then when it's over, if we need to talk about it, I'll promote my little YouTube channel and we'll talk about that. Okay. Uh, you guys ready? Here we go. Short Questions, Short Answers by Tor Teacher Ariel and eBible. Copyright Tate Tor Ministries, 2015. All rights reserved. Here's our question. What does the Bible mean when it says the Spirit brooded? What does that verse mean? All right, we're going to take a look at some Hebrew tonight. Let me read the English and then the Hebrew, and then I'll explain. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2 says the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Let's look at the Hebrew on the screen as well. The Hebrew verse 1 says, Breshit bara Elohim, et ha-aretz. Verse 2 says, Vaha'aretz haita tohu vavohu, v'choshek al tahom, V'ruach Elohim mirachevet al panei or panei hamayim. What does it mean that this spirit ruach of God Elohim mirachevet hovered al panayim over the face of the waters? The original Hebrew word translated as brooded or hovered in Genesis 1 2 is mirachevet, and the root word is rachaf, and it conveys a sense of shaking, moving, fluttering, as when a bird softly relaxes its flight light upon its young. This is a kind of a, a close proximity that's being described. And it adequately describes the actions of the Ruach, the Spirit, as he lovingly and closely watches over the created substance. How so? Well, this verb, although found three times in Scripture, is defined as, quote, hovering, end quote, only one other time in the entire Tanakh, the Old Testament. Here's the verse. He found his people in desert country, in a howling, wasted wilderness. He protected him and cared for him, guarded him like the pupil of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up her nest, hovers, there's our word, over her young, spreads out her wings, takes him, and carries him as she flies. That's Deuteronomy 32, 10 through 11. 
this beautiful illustration of the protective power of the Spirit in relation to his children, Am Yisrael, the people of Israel, as they travel through the wilderness, reminds me of the same Spirit that hovered over the waters at the beginning of creation, hovering, protecting, providing life to that which it is protecting. Understand what I'm trying to say there? It's this idea of a closely guarding and watching, but a carefully doing so. That's this word hovering. The word translated hovers in our above verse from Deuteronomy is the same root as the one that's used in Genesis 1-2, the chav. That's the same word. Now, check this out. In fact, to strengthen the connection between the two applications of the spirit in Genesis and the spirit in Deuteronomy, the Haftor portion to Genesis, a Torah portion is Isaiah 42, 5-43, 10. The Haftor portion is a prescribed reading portion from the prophets and the writings that was chosen by the ancient sages, the Jewish people, to complement the Torah portion, typically complementary in either its opening few phrases or the content. In this passage from the Haftor portion of Isaiah, we read in the opening 17 Hebrew words a summary of the first chapter in Genesis. The Hebrew reads first, 42 verse 5, Kol amar ha'el Adonai borei hashamayim v'notehem roka ha'aretz v'tzetz eya notein nishmar la'am alea v'ruach l'cholchim ba. Thus says God, Adonai, who created the heavens and spread them out, who stretched out the earth and all that grows from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. All right. I hope this brief explanation adds some insight to the verse in question. This excerpt was lifted from my Messianic commentary to Genesis. You can see the video link in the upper right corner uh, for more information on watching that particular video teaching. Okay? All right. Check out my podcasts, which are available on iTunes. You can search for me in the store under the search term Ariel Hanavi. But if you prefer to watch your theology, check out my YouTube channel. Subscribe to my YouTube channel and click the bell for notifications. New content is added weekly or even daily. All right, that'll do it for the little video. I hope trust that it was a blessing. And if there are, um, if you have, you know, if you have any questions about the video content, um, be sure to send me an email. Or when you're watching the video, make sure you're leaving questions or comments right there on the video. On that note, let me just promote my. Uh, 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 YouTube channel just briefly. You can find me online at youtube.com forward slash C for the word channel forward slash Tate's Tor Ministries. And that's my YouTube uh, address. In fact, you're probably seeing a little post-production uh, a, a graphic on the screen right now that shows you that. Once you get to the, the um, YouTube uh, channel itself, uh, feel free to uh, make sure you browse around, uh, look at all the thumbnails, but make sure you notice that they're the normal sort is for um, that I've sorted them as the oldest to the uh, latest. So if you look at them, you're like, gosh, two years ago, two years ago, is, is this guy uploading anything recently, right? Everything's so old. Well, that's when you, on the homepage, if you click on the videos tab, 
then the default sort for YouTube is from the latest back to the oldest. It's the reverse sort. And there you'll see all the latest ones that I've uploaded. And uh, you can see, uh, you know, find out which videos are uh, of interest and go from there. Of course, always you can always click through the playlist and find um, uh, different topics that are of interest to you as well. And as I always mention, four things that you need to do when you hit my or watch my videos. Number one, subscribe so that you're in the loop. Make sure that uh, you're... Um, uh, aware of when I'm uploading content. Uh, YouTube will automatically notify you just by default um, to a certain extent if you're as long as you're subscribed. Number two, make sure you hit the little bell for notifications. That'll and then you can choose whether you get all notifications or specialized notifications. And those notifications will go to your um, mobile device. I don't think they go to your email anymore unless you're using your mobile device. They don't go to the desktop computer or laptop, but they definitely will notify you. If, especially if you're subscribed, they'll notify you that way as well. Third, make sure you're um, hitting the little thumbs up because of course you're going to like my content, right? Come on, all right? Where are you going to find content like this on the internet? So watch it, subscribe to it, you know, hit the bell and get a little thumbs up. Well, okay, if you, only if you like it. Uh, and then lastly, um, make sure you are sharing my content with, uh, with those around you. I'm really going to add a fifth one one of these days is that you need to add some comments there as well um, if you like what you're, what you're watching. And if you disagree... Leave me a comment and tell me why you disagreed. At least tell me what I did wrong or what you think I should have changed, and uh, we can talk about it, okay? All right, that'll do it for the videos and for the um, liturgy. Nope, not for the liturgy. Let, let's go Let's go to liturgy. I think I may have gone out of order. I watched the, 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 the video first and then the liturgy. Oh, well, sometimes it happens. Let's actually turn to the liturgy now. This liturgy is going to be spirit-related. Um, I won't belabor the point. I've read this liturgy in the past. It's one of my favorite passages out of the Tanakh, out of the prophets. Uh, it's from the book of Ezekiel, um, and it's chapter 36. And what I like about this passage, let's be straightforward and tell you, and you're going to figure out this when we read it. I like this passage because it's a corporate promise from God speaking to future Israel actually speaking to current Israel about their future, about how that um, one day God is going to corporately fill them with his spirit and bring them into a lasting relationship with them. So we're really talking about a salvation experience on a corporate level. But now we're, we're seeing this played out now individually with individual Israelites or Jews coming to Messiah down through the ages. But one day this is going to culminate in a, in a, in a mass um We'll have this this larger uh, corporate outpouring of the Spirit of God once again on Israel, and it'll cause them to bring, be brought into a right relationship with God. Does this mean every single Israelite? I don't think so. Um, but all those whom the Lord counts towards salvation will be brought into this relationship. And we can talk about that a little later on a different study. But for now, let's read the liturgy and just sit back and enjoy it. I'll read the English on the left, which is ESV, and I'll read the Hebrew on the right, which is Masoretic. And we'll read about, I don't know, probably seven verses, 22 through 28, I want to say, six or seven verses, something like that. So we'll start right there, okay? Uh, Ezekiel 36, 22. English says, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. Verse 23, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. 
verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Verse 26, here's the spirit verse. It's the beginning of it. Uh, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And he continues at verse 27. And I will put my spirit within you. These are still corporate verses. We can tell by the, the, the pronouns in the, in the Hebrew. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I like the result of the spirits in dwelling is that it will cause the children of Israel to walk in God's statutes and be careful to obey his rules. Does it say anything here in verse 27 as I kind of poke my finger at the Christian church today? Does it say anything in here in verse 27 that God will put his spirit within them and cause them to walk in a different law? Like say the law of Messiah instead of the law of Moses? Or cause them to disregard the Torah, to set it aside, to consider it an old dispensation or to consider it fulfilled or done away with? Is that what this verse says? Is that what it says? I don't think so. I'm poking my finger at the historic Christian church. And it kind of hurts, right? God does not put his spirit within Israel corporately in order to cause them to turn away from his laws and, walk in a, and, and, and disobey his rules. It is the opposite. God infuses corporate Israel with his spirit so that the result is that they will walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. That is Holy Spirit indwelling, and that is Holy Spirit empowerment, and that forms the paradigm, that is the example, for us in the Christian church today to understand that our salvation experience is supposed to cause us to, to use Ezekiel's phraseology, walk in God's statutes and be careful to obey God's rules. And that's Torah. That's Torah. That's not necessarily some new uh, New Testament that doesn't agree with the Old Testament. Okay, God's statutes and rules are outlined from Old Testament all the way through New Testament. It's one book of instruction. So I'll continue in my liturgy in verse 28. You, speaking of Israel, shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Let's turn to the... Go back and read the Hebrew. What did I say? We'll start in verse um, 22. So it means we're starting right there. The Hebrew says, Lachain emor, levet Yisrael, ko amar Adonai Adonai. There's two, a doubling up of God's name there. The first one is A-D-O-N-A-I, and the second one is Y-H-V-H. And that's why we have it as Lord God in your English versions. But the Hebrew really does say Adonai Adonai, which may originally have even said Yahweh, Yahweh, but uh, that's a different sermon for a different day. Ko amar Adonai, Adonai, lo lama'anchem ani ose beit Yisrael, ki im lachshem kadshi emor, chilaltem bagoim asher batem sham. Continuing in verse 23, um, uh, the Hebrew says, vaki dadshi et Shmi Hagadol Ham Hulal 
Bagoim Asher, speaking to the Gentiles now, Bagoim, speaking of the Gentiles, Asher, Chilaltem Betocham Vayadu Hagoyim Ki Ani Adonai Neum Adonai, Adonai, again, doubling up, Neum Adonai Adonai, Behikadshi Bachem Leenehim. Verse 24 says, Speaking of God now, he's going to be the one doing this. I will take you from the nations. Uh, bringing you back into uh, your own land. Uh, verse 25, starting right there, says, Vazalachti alechem mayim tahorim ut Let's try that. Let's try that one again. Uthartem. Um, Oh, Utahartem. Okay, I'm sorry. I was uh, mispronouncing there. Apologize. Michol, boy, I'm really butchering the Hebrew tonight. Mimotechem umchol gululechem ateher, same root word as the one I was butchering earlier, ateher etchem. And verse 26, lev chadash, v'ruach chadasha. There's the new spirit, or the holy spirit, I will put within you the ruach chadasha, the chadash ruach chadasha, I will put this new spirit within you, etem b'chir b'chem v'chasiroti et lev ha'even mi v'sarachem v'natatilachem lev b'sar and then verse 27, again, God is still doing all this, Israel isn't conjuring this up on their own, right, this is not human effort, God says et ruchi and my spirit at him I will put bechirabechem within them va'asiti et asher v'chukai telechu and you will keep, you will walk in my statues, I like that translation literally v'chukai telechu you will walk in my statues, umish Umish pati tishmru, and you will guard, uh, be careful, tishmru vasitim, my uh, 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 rules and things like that. And then the final verse, verse 28, right there, that I'll be reading for tonight. The shifta bashifa, let's try that one again. Vi shav tem ba'aretz asher natati lavotechem v'hitem li la'am and then his concluding statement va'anochi et va'anochi e va'anochi echelachem le Elohim and I will be your God and go back and read the passage on your own don't focus on the fact that I butchered all the Hebrew there go back and read the passage on your own in in English or whatever translation you prefer. Dwell on the passage, meditate on it, pour through it with a commentary, and figure out what God's trying to say to you. Whether you're grafted into Israel or not, whether you count yourself identified with Israel or not, these verses really should speak to you because, as I mentioned, it's the same God that we serve, the Jews and Gentiles, we serve the same God, especially if you are um, joined to God particularly through Messiah Yeshua. It's the one and the same God that, that's speaking these passages to ancient Israel. And thus, the same Holy Spirit that God is going to pour into his people in these prophetic passages is the very same Spirit that resides within you if you are a Christian, if you are a disciple.
if you are Talmud of, of Yeshua, it is the very same spirit. And therefore, this should cause you to stop and think about these verses in a whole new light. Let's turn to Romans 14. Let's see if I can butcher the Greek like I butchered the Hebrew. This is going to correspond to our Hebrew or to our um, Roman study tonight. Um, Romans 14, and we're going to drop all the way down to. We're talking about the brothers, so they're going to read verse 10, 11, 12, and 13. Those are the ones we're going to read. And um, uh, let me read the English from here, and then I'll jump over to a different version of the Greek so that you can see uh, which words correspond with what. I want you to see the word brother and uh, uh, things like that. Um, starting right there in the English. Uh, verse 10 of Romans 14 says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Paul speaking to Jews and Gentiles. Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And I believe he's speaking to both believers and unbelievers. And we'll talk about that this tonight. Verse 11 says, For as it is written, for it is written, I'm sorry, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. And that's, of course, reminiscent of a passage out of the book of Isaiah, um, where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Um, and Paul repeats this uh, this. Uh, uh, passage in, in his Carmen Christi of Philippians chapter, um, I think it's chapter 2. Uh, Romans 14, uh, 12. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. <clears throat> and then verse 13 says, Therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Let's turn now to a different re rendering of the uh, passage. This is the same website, but a different tool. It's now going to be the interlinear, so you can see the uh, Greek word here and the English rendering right below it. And I'll read this Greek here, and you can see the which words correspond with what. With what. And so, for instance, you can see when I say brother, when I say Adelphon here, you can see the Greek word corresponding to the English uh, below it. Give me a second. I need to clear my throat. Alrighty, let's read this here. Verse 10 says, Su de ti crines ton adelphon su, e kai su ti exuthenes ton adelphon su. Pantes gar para ste samatha to bemati tutheu. Verse 11, and probably in post-production, I won't show all this. I'll just show the original Greek. Um, uh, but 11 says, Gagraptai, as has been written, Gagraptai, gar, zoego lege curias hati emoi, kamse pan gani kai pasa glosa exoma. Let's try that one again. Exomalago, exolamo. I'm just going to butcher that one. Ex a ma la gesetai. That's just too many syllables for me to wrap my brain around. Ex a la ma ex. I'm not going to try it again. You guys can read it there. Uh, Tothet o. Oh, I concede. I yield. You can tell Greek is not my uh, first language. So let's jump into verse 12. Actually, I'm fine with making mistakes in the Greek. I wish I didn't make them in the Hebrew as well. I wish I was a little more polished in the, in the languages that I'm reading. But um, I'm, I'm trying. I'm, I'm letting you know. I'm, I'm transparent here. I'm not a Hebrew or Greek scholar. Neither one of these are my primary languages. English is the primary one, and I butcher that half the time as well. But I'm fine with trying to try and, and uh, stumble through it along with you guys. Um, I know many Hebrew and Greek students out there 
struggle with the same thing. So I'm human as well. I make mistakes. So I'm in the learning process. Still trying to make my Hebrew and Greek a little stronger, but um, I'm getting older and it's just so hard to pick up a second language. All right, uh, Romans 14:12 says, Ara un hekastas hemon peri kautu logon dose to theo. That one was easy. Um, where did I want to stop? Verse. Uh, let's read one more verse, verse 13. Because um, it mentions the word uh, brother, and that's why we're, we're focusing that. Uh, verse 13 says, Make it un alelus crinomen, ala tuta crinata, malanto me tethenai praskamato adelpho e scandalon. And the word that we're really um, looking at is, and we're going to talk about, it, is this word adelpho. You you hear this word, it's brother. You hear this in the name of the English city, um, Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Adelphia, it, that, that last part of the name, is where we get, um, it's rooted in this uh, Greek word, Adelpha, or Adelphos, as it showed up earlier. So we're going to be talking about that tonight. And that'll do it for my butchering of the Hebrew and the Greek. Again, I apologize for butchering it. Um, sometimes it happens. Some days my, it's just really clean, and other days uh, my mind just can't focus on those particular um, uh, languages. Let's turn now to Romans 14 Unplugged, Feasts, and Fasts, and Food. Oh my. And we're in a section where we're um, talking about or asking the question, who is the brother? And... The, the, what we're learning from my study here is that the topic of who is the brother in Paul is directly related to who are the weak in faith. And the short answer that I've been providing, the, 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 the thesis that I'm running with, is that when Paul addresses the weak in faith in his letter, he's actually addressing a group of people that he knows and they also have this perception of who they are even if he doesn't actually name them um even if he probably wouldn't go to their face and say hey you guys are weak but in his letter he's identifying groups of people in the congregations that he's writing to in rome and i believe that there's a strong case that can be made that the weak in faith are not actually uh, uh christian jews who are still uh, keeping Torah, and their weakness is, is an indication of their Torah keeping, or the Torah keeping is an indication of weakness. In other words, they're tied together. That's the way the historic Christian church has um, characterized the weak as anyone who believes in Jesus, that is to say, anyone who is a brother or a Christian, but yet keeps Torah also. In the mind of historic Christianity down through the last 2,000 years or so, that is a sign of weakness of some sort, or deficiency on the part of your faith. But I have strong um, pushback against that particular perspective for many various reasons, some of them personal, but some of them, uh, most of them rooted simply in the, the context of the way Paul writes, the way he describes himself, his self-disclosure, and of course the witness from the Tanakh itself. Remember the passage that we, we just read in Ezekiel? Paul, I'm sorry, um, the, the prophet there describes uh, corporate Israel one day being filled with the Spirit of God and then being um, um, empowered to walk in the ways of God, which of course would include his Torah. If if weakness is described as a believer who keeps Torah, then I guess what Ezekiel is prophesying is that one day all of Israel will be corporately weak. See how the theology just falls apart when we when we comp compare what traditional Christianity is assuming today 
when we compare that actually with the biblical account of God saying, I will fill you with my spirit, and that will cause you to walk in my ways, which include, naturally, of course, includes my Torah. So please, please rethink this, people. Don't just assume that weak in faith must mean a believer who keeps Torah, specifically a Jewish believer. That just doesn't fit with the historic scriptures, particularly the passages read out of Ezekiel and other passages as well, like Jeremiah. And it doesn't agree with Paul's own lifelong example of being a believer in Jesus and a lifelong loyal uh, follower of Torah as well. So I believe instead that weak in faith refers to a weakness in their faith in Messiah, not weak in their faith in God or loyalty towards Torah, but weak as in undecided that Jesus is the Messiah that they've been studying about and expecting and hoping for and waiting for. They're not hostile to the idea that Jesus can be the Messiah, but they're still in investigative mode. They're still in what I call decision mode. So this puts a better spin on the passage. It doesn't make Torah into a negative value in your life or something that you should avoid because it's a sign of weakness. In fact, exonerates Torah and brings it to the place where it should be, which is a positive um, um, ingredient in your life, a positive uh, aspect of your walk with Messiah, something that enhances your walk, something that puts you in a collision path, collision course with uh, the blessings of God, and is something that uh, provides um, the, the tool that the Holy Spirit can use to uh, c uh, continue to um, uh, sanctify you, uh, bring you into a more godly lifestyle that's pleasing to God. The Torah becomes that tool in the hands of the Holy Spirit. So, who are the weak in faith? They are those unbelieving Jews in, within the uh, congregations that Paul was um, uh, writing to that were still deciding whether or not Jesus was this Messiah. So how does that impact our understanding of who the brother is? Well, quite plainly, brother then becomes for Paul a more broadly used term that can include Jews and Gentiles, both believers and unbelievers, pr pro uh, provided they're still within this confines of a congregational um, uh, uh, setting, um, uh, a synagogue community. So we're not just talking about general Jews in large or Gentiles the world over that Paul's saying, hey, see that Gentile over on the other side of the world who doesn't believe in Jesus? Well, he's still my brother. That's not what I mean by that. What I mean by that is uh, Gentiles who had been brought into proximity with the God of Israel and were beginning to learn about the God of Israel, the scriptures of Israel, the people of Israel, and the Messiah of Israel, and begin to make a decision uh, about their uh, relationship with Messiah. Uh, as long as they're joining a the lot with the God of Israel, that begins their brotherhood into the brotherhood of, of the, the, the community of faith that Paul would count as his communities. So having said all of that, let me turn to this... Um, uh, 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 resource that we've been using. Um, I, I mentioned last week in my study that this was a quote from a book um, called um, uh, Reading Romans Within Context or something to that effect. You can see a screenshot on your screen right now that I'm adding in post-production. But it's actually, I was wrong. This actually is the mystery of Romans that I'm quoting from. And so we're going to pick up the reading again where um, uh, Paul is talking about this brother. And uh, we're on page 104. We're just going to read a few pages of this. Um, and then we'll turn to the Shema study. Maybe not even a few pages, maybe one page. I think I left off somewhere around here about where he's talking about blaspheming. And so let me pick up uh, the study once again right here where you can see on the page. This is Mark Nanos. He's a Jewish historian, an author, and religious writer. As far as I understand, he himself is not a Messianic Jew. He doesn't espouse to belief in Jesus. But he has a... a, 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 a um, 
he has a very good understanding of the New Testament scriptures, even if he's not himself claiming to be a believer. But his strongest point is in his historical understanding of Paul as a writer. And so he is an historian, so we're going to use this resource. If you take umbrage with the fact that he's not a believer, well, then I, there's nothing I can help you out with there. I myself am of the uh, understanding that we as believers can actually gain understanding from other writers, whether they're Christian or not. I mean, you go to your doctor and you see him because he's a specialist in his field, and you don't just, you don't just, just uh, um, What's the word I'm going to use? We don't discriminate whether or not the doctor is a believer or not. I mean, it's preferred if a doctor is a believer, but in, at the end of the day, as long as he's he, he he's uh, got a good license, it's standing right, it's good standing. Um, you know, he's trained and he's trusted and reliable. And you know, if he's a good doctor, then you just go to him, right? So why do we do that, that with, with 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 one area of our life, but we don't do that with with scriptural analysis? We need a bit of historical lesson sometimes, and sometimes. Pastors aren't the best historians. As <laughs> as good, they're good theologians, but sometimes they're weak his, historians. So, so uh, Mark Nanos is going to be the historian for us this time, Jewish historian, and here's what he has to say. Quote. This is um, a mystery of Romans. Paul regarded the weak as brethren, both to himself and to the strong in Rome, as we see in his comments to the strong. So let's read some passages out of the book of Romans here and see what um, Paul's own words have to say. Verse fourteen, verse ten of chapter fourteen, Paul says, "But why? But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt?" And we read that passage in our liturgy. He says in verse thirteen again, we read in the liturgy. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. And then the, the last verse um, that uh, Mark Nanos quotes, he says, For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. And we have to remember when he says for him for whom Christ died, yes, this is, this is primarily believers because Christ died for believers. But Paul tells us earlier on in this letter, in Romans chapter 5, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us, which means Christ died also for unbelievers to the extent that they would be brought into a relationship with him. So we're still within the context of him uh, using the word brother here in a larger and a broader sense than what is normally taught in Christian circles, that brother exclusively means Christian. Don't get me wrong. Let me tell you the bottom line up front. Brother does predominantly mean someone who's a believer in Christ in the New Testament. The word Adelphon or Adelphos or Adelphoi, however it's um, uh, um, uh, uh, for, formed in the Greek, the different forms that we find it in. Um uh, the, the declensions that we find it in, the nouns, then it primarily does mean a believer in Jesus, someone who's been brought into a specialized relationship with God through the Messiah, and that's how the word brothers used predominantly in the New Testament. However, there are a few cases here and there that help us understand that the word brother is applied to the brotherhood of Israel, as in um, uh, 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 ethnic Jews, but it also carries over into this broad definition of someone who is brought into a relationship with God through the covenant uh, parameters that are spelled out to Israel, so that brotherhood within Israel is broad enough to include someone from the nations who's been grafted into Israel's boundaries, especially at the messianic level so that they're grafted into the remnant of Israel. But they're first brought into a relationship with Israel through faith in God. So that, in my 
uh, definition would be the starting point of their brotherhood uh, uh, relationship with Israel is they are going to say that God is my God and I'm going to forsake all the gods of the nations and the pagans around me and I'm going to believe in this one true God. And at that point in time, their relationship as a brother, whether they're Jewish or not by ethnicity, doesn't matter, but the relationship as a brother begins, they are a faith brother. And that's Paul's faith community is Israelites who are native-born Israelites and Gentiles who are brought into this relationship with Israel. And I think I'll put a little graphic here that shows my remnant grafted in Romans olive tree thing. I'll put that on the screen here for those uh, watching the YouTube video. And so that's brotherhood for Paul. And so don't think always that brotherhood has to refer specifically to Christians exclusively. Yes, it does most naturally. And the context determines. I believe that the context here allows for us to broaden our understanding of brotherhood to include those Gentiles and Jews who were within the community of faith that Paul was writing to in Rome, namely Jews and Gentiles and Messiah, and Jews and Gentiles who hadn't made a decision of who Messiah was yet, primarily Jews. But this must also include Gentiles. But they're still saying, we believe in God. We want to follow after his ways. But we don't yet know who Messiah Jesus is. Is he our Lord? Could we, can we call him Lord? Can we trust him? We're deciding. We're praying about it. That type of thing. All right. So that's where I'm going with this discussion. I have to give you that up front so that um, you guys can uh, follow my study. Let's keep reading Mark, Mark Nanos. Let's read this next paragraph here. Nano says, Paul clearly regarded the practices of the week to be indic indication of monotheistic faith towards God, for these practices were accepted by God. Even if the strong did not share Paul's opinion of the acceptability of the opinions and practices of the week toward God, for they did not apparently respect their practices as acts of faith. And he's giving verses to support his opinions. I'm just, just not reading the verses. Um, Paul did any and Paul did, and he intended for the strong to share his opinion of the valid faith in God demonstrated by the practices of the weak, opposing their judgmentalism along lines strikingly similar to those found in his opening comments in um, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 and 4 and following, and his discussion on the branches broken off in chapter 11 that we would read about if we were to continue reading the whole book of Romans. So, uh, the letter. So, the point that's being brought up by Mark Nanos here is that um, Paul describes the faith of the strong as something that he shares with, but he describes the practices, notice faith and practices, he describes the practices of the weak towards God as something that God approves of. Therefore, the strong must also approve. So now let's go back to this idea of the weak supposedly being Torah observance as a believer. Well, if that's something that is pejorative, a, a kind of a, a strike against you as a believer, right, as the way the Christian church describes it today, well, then certainly we would assume that God would not be accepting of that type of practice, um, preferring rather that a weak person grows in his faith and grows away from his Torah observance and grows into a place where he's free to walk in the Spirit and not have to be encumbered by the Mosaic Law and be held down by all the strictures and, and the do's and the don'ts and legalities and the, 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 the minutia and all that of the Mosaic Law. So if, in, if indeed that viewpoint is accurate according to common uh, popular Christian theology, then Paul certainly wouldn't be explained to the strong that the practices of the weak are acceptable to God. 
especially if it's, it's if it's a negative value in your life. It's if it's something that's a sign of weakness that you want to grow out of. Like you know, like in human terms, to use an example. When we're younger, when we're babies, when we're toddlers, when we're infants, you know, we're so weak that we can't even walk. We're so weak that we can't even relieve ourselves in the in the bathroom, right? We have to be carried around by by adults. Uh, you know, we have to be uh, cared for very closely. You know, heck, we have to wear diapers because we cannot even help ourselves in the most basics of human functions, right? We mess ourselves. That's weakness, right? Human weakness. It's frailty. But it's something that all humans understand that we're going to grow out of eventually. So it's not wrong for babies to be weak. Rather, we understand, okay, this is a stage. This is a phase that you're in, and all humans go through it. Given enough time, you will grow out of that weakness and strengthen yourselves to the point where you don't have to be carried around anymore. You can walk on your own, and you can use the toilet on your own. Yay, right? No more diapers. Well, is that what Paul's saying? Is that the practices of the weak, right? The, the idea that you can't, uh, using my analogy, the idea that you have to be carried by other people and you're still wearing diapers. Is that type of behavior something that God accepts or rejects? Paul says that it's acceptable. So, Let's con- so therefore it should give us a new perspective on what this phrase "weak" actually is uh, uh, pointing towards. So let's keep uh, reading through Nanos. Um, we have a, a, um, a quote here. I think I don't remember. I think I remember stopping. Uh, we're in this section about uh, the problem with identifying the weak as Christians, uh, which of course implies or has heavy implications on what it means to be a brother. So let me just finish this last paragraph because I think I can finish this. Um, uh, in Nanos here, he has a quote, and um, this is from Paul. For God has accepted him, and he will stand, speaking of the weak and the strong, and he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. Both the strong and the weak are accepted by God, and the Lord is able to make them stand. The Lord here is a reference to Yeshua. And he who eats food uh, eats not for the Lord. He does not eat and gives thanks to God. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you, again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. So Paul is putting, and that's a reference from Romans 14, verses 3 through 12, kind of pieced back together by Nanos here. What Paul is trying to say is that the weak and the strong are both acceptable to God, and they'll both stand before the Lord, and the Lord is able to make them stand, and therefore judgmentalism and that attitude which comes with judgmentalism and the actions are unacceptable. And Paul's trying to correct that negative, the judgmentalism and all of that. In the end, the best we can say as Christians, Gentile Christians, as we examine the Torah observance of Jews is this. Whether or not that's a sign of weakness, we can't be certain at all times because... Yes, there may, there may be um, different reasons why different people are doing different Bible activities. You know, maybe they are legalists in their own mind. Maybe they think it will save them if they keep the law, right? And that would be a sign of, of, of weakness on their, on their part. So perhaps we can't always know, mo- know motive when we watch people act the way they act. But w- at the very least, what we can say is this. The actions themselves, if you are following after the Word of God, to the extent that you're doing actions that God commands to be done, Paul would recognize that those actions are acceptable to God. So um, motive may, may, may not always be acceptable to God, but the actions themselves, at at least a very base level, we could see that Paul would not 
want to dissuade someone from keeping Torah, at least not in this passage. He's going to go on and explain in other books like Galatians that your motives for keeping the things that you do and, and trying to become covenant members and follow after Torah and things like that, your motives are going to trip you up and it's going to bring you into a situation that Paul ultimately is going to label bondage. Right? Go back and read Galatians all over again, the whole book. It's very short. You know, you can read it in one setting, six chapters, or better yet, go to my, not better yet, but in addition to that, go and study Galatians along with my commentary that I put together. The point I'm trying to make is that when we see someone keeping Torah, don't always be so quick to judge them. Like, oh boy, man, they're weak, especially if it's a believer, someone that we would call a brother anyway. Why would a brother keeping Torah be counted as weak? Why is their Torah keeping regarded as weakness? Don't automatically default into that mindset is the point I'm trying to bring up. So, Nanos concludes, I think I can finish this tonight. Perhaps most importantly, Paul describes them as weak in faith. Paul does not describe them as weak in opinion. In fact, he instructs the strong not to dispute the opinions of the weak in Rome, an instruction that has apparently been lost in Christian theology, even among those who make this very point. The weak practice what they practice in faith. They have faith in God and the one God of historic Israel, and thus they are the Lord, speaking of unbelieving Jews, right? And they are urged to continue in the practice of their opinions, fully convinced in their own minds that what they do is unto the Lord, that is, they are to continue in the monotheistic faith that they have, even if that faith is characterized as weak. Obviously, Paul wants these weak-in-Messiah faith to be brought into a strong-in-Messiah faith via the power of the Holy Spirit helping them to make that decision. But in the meantime, if they have faith in God and they're loyal to Torah, then they're on the right path as I fill in for Paul's thoughts. That's what I believe is the, the big kicker that's different from the way Christian uh, theologians uh, spin this particular part of Paul's letter. An unbelieving Jew who has a faith in God and is loyal to Torah is actually on the right path. What we need to do as a believer, whether we're Jewish or not, is come alongside that unbelieving Jew and help them to understand that faith in God and loyalty to Torah should lead someone into the place that was described by the prophet Ezekiel that we read about earlier in my liturgy. Go back and read Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 22 through 28 that I read in my liturgy for those of you watching this YouTube video and not understanding what I'm talking about. Faith in God and loyalty to Torah is supposed to lead a person to the conclusion that the Messiah that you study about in the Torah is the only one who can bring you into a genuine and lasting relationship with God. And thus, your faith in God and your loyalty to Torah should culminate or terminate or uh, um, be brought to a fullness in um, in a faith in Messiah. That's the goal of the Torah. In fact, Paul's going to say that in Romans chapter 10, verse uh, 4. So let's conclude with um, this quote from, um, from uh, Mark Nanos. You know what? I'm not going to conclude this because I, I, I don't. I, I feel like I'm going a little too fast. So next week um, we will uh, finish this quote from Mark Nanos. We'll start right here in this paragraph. But the question still stands: Is the faith of the weak described as though it was necessarily Christian? And we'll just close out with that. There, we'll finish this next week. All right. So that'll do it for our Romans 14 study. Okay. Let's turn now to the exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity, and take maybe 15 minutes or so to work through the uh, the um. Uh, resources that I got pulled up. Still waiting on some of my um, <clears throat> scriptural tabs to open up, so um, I'll see what I can do about that. If I can't get to them, I can't. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll do my best. Um, we're in this little uh, chart put together by Karm, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, with all kinds of titles and attributes in a uh, pillar. A pillar? I think it's a column. Running on the 
the, the far left side, and we've been looking at this uh, um, uh, first pillar, this first uh, table, first uh, uh, line uh, uh, called God. And um, we already looked at Father called God, the Son called God, and now we're finalizing the Holy Spirit called God. We might not finalize it tonight. Next week is Hanukkah, and so we'll, I'll do a special Hanukkah study next week. And then the week after that, we might pick up where we left off with the, um, the Holy Spirit study. It depends on how far I get tonight and if my computer's going to cooperate with me and stop going so slow. So bear with me. All right, let's jump right into um, a... Um, a, a resource that I've got pulled up on my screen. This is from a, um, a gentleman by the name of um, Cluzet, I believe his name is. It's a French name. Um, and he's um, a Seventh-day Adventist writer. Uh, let me see if I can see his name. Um, I'll find it a little later. But uh, from a Seventh-day Adventist perspective, SDA, there are many differences, of course. This is my my disclaimer that I have with Seventh-day Adventists in terms of some of their theology. But one thing that I'm in strong agreement with as far as I understand their position is the doctrine of the Trinity. And so when it comes to the person of the Holy Spirit like we're talking about, I'm going to pull this resource from this gentleman, uh, from this uh, professor, and uh, um, uh, we'll see how this uh, bears uh, uh, relevance for us for our Holy Spirit study. Let me read. He's got like um, why a, he's got a, a section entitled "Why a Biblical View of the Person of the Spirit Matters" in this particular PDF that I'm borrowing, and um, he's got about like four or five reasons. I'm going to start with one tonight, and then I'll read the others in a different study, a different week. But he says, "Why a Biblical View of the Person Person of the Spirit of Matters? Why does it matter?" To understand, can I can I highlight that? No. Why does it matter to understand the Holy Spirit as a person in the Godhead? Our earlier treatment of the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5 gives us a clue. If we don't understand or refuse to understand that the Holy Spirit is a person in the Godhead, we will tend to treat him as an it and occur on destruction. And we're going to talk a little bit about this tonight, uh, about the uh, pronouns it and things like that, if I can get through it tonight. He goes on to say, this is why the unpardonable sin is the one committed against the Holy Spirit. And we've got a reference to Matthew 12, 31 and 32. For us, the point of contact with God is through his Holy Spirit. As David says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence in the book of Psalms? Now stop and think about it for a second. As the writer is going to point out, the point of most immediate contact is not through the Father. And not even through Jesus, right? The Father kind of dwells in heaven and is a spirit. And he's unapproachable. Likewise, Yeshua, after his um, ascension, now dwells primarily in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. We, uh, we assume that he um, visits planet Earth and makes appearances here and there, but um, for the most part, that's not the way the Bible describes uh, where he's residing. For the most part, as far as we can tell, he's at the right hand of the Father. Um, and he's still a person, which means... Since Yeshua left, as is the role of the of the Holy Spirit, he is now present with us, and this is how we are interacting with God and with Yeshua. It's through the, the, the power of the Holy Spirit. So it makes sense that um, the unpardonable sin is the one committed against the Holy Spirit, not necessarily against God or against Yeshua himself. So let's keep reading. Um, <clears throat> This author goes on to say that uh, whereas Christ is the sinner's intercession as our high priest in heaven, a reference to Hebrews chapter 7 and chapter 8, the spirit is our intercession as our parakletos, one like him on earth. And we're going to look at this paraklete, parakletos uh, Greek word a little bit later. 
Um, the reference to that uh, paraclete reference uh, is from Romans 8, 26 and 27. The Holy Spirit is here in our midst, Paul teaches us in that passage. It is only through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that we can access the efficacy of Christ's intercessory ministry. Without him, it would be impossible to even understand or accept Christ as Savior and Lord. He goes on to say, if we treat the Holy Spirit as an it, a mere emanation or influence devoid of personality and will, we find it especially easy to ignore him, to lend deaf ears to his voice, and an invitation to leave self behind and abandon it to the hands of a God with whom all things are possible. And of course, we are supposed to be relying on God, but if we consider that God's spirit or power of God is just this impersonal force or or resource that we can tap into, you know, kind of like the electricity in my wall I can plug into whenever I need it, then I'm going to treat it like an object, you know, much like I treat my electricity as an object. I only turn to it when I need it. I don't turn to it when I seek fellowship. I don't turn to it when I need assistance or guidance, you know, because I can't fellowship with it in, in, in the first place. So we don't want to treat God's spirit like an it. Uh, the, this author goes on to say, um, like the Pharisees of old, we're likely to reject the very one our hearts longed for, and the Spirit reveals the greatest object of our gratitude, which of course is Jesus Christ, our Savior. He goes on to say, we can understand the Son's despair on the banks of the Mount of Olives that Sunday at dusk, by the way, it's Cluzet, uh, I think it's Ron Cluzet, uh, dusk when looking to the temple. Yeshua uh, himself, he knew that the time of probation for the leaves of Jerusalem that night would come to a close. Um, he continues, they had rejected Christ the Messiah by rejecting the wooing of the Spirit to their hearts, speaking of those unbelieving religious leaders of his day. With a double vocative expressive of deepest emotion, Christ cries, quote, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is left to you desolate, end quote. That's Matthew 23, 37 to 38. So we can see our relationship to the Holy Spirit is vital. Our relationship to the Holy Spirit is that which draws us into a proper relationship with God and secures our understanding of who Yeshua is as our very Savior. As Paul's going to tell us in Romans, we can only express lordship of the Messiah through the very Spirit. That's in Colossians that we read, I'm sorry, in Corinthians that we read those truths. So that's going to help us begin to formulate our views of the Holy Spirit. Is he a he? Is he an it? That's the first reason by this particular author, and we'll look at more in weeks to come. Secondly, let's just remind ourselves uh, in this study on the Holy Spirit, as we're going to look at some Greek tonight, uh, and I'll see how many of these passages I can get to, um, remind ourselves real quick about the uh, pronouns in Greek. Let me blow this up a little bit so it is easier for everyone to read. This is a Greek resource that I've got pulled up about personal pronouns. And I just want to drop down to the third person, right? Third person, third person pronoun. In contrast to the first and second person pronouns, this Greek resource, this is ntgreek.net, reminds us that the third person pronouns decline for numbers, case, and gender as follows, meaning the different forms that we find Greek in. And why does this matter? Well, we're going to find out here in a moment when we read some passages. 
Third-person personal pronoun in the masculine singular uh, in the nominative case is autos. Nominative means it's kind of like the, 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 the subject of the sentence. And then we have the genitive, which is like the possessive, right? The, the, the apostrophe S. And then we have the dative, which uh, describes like means and, and uh, for and to, you know, it, 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 it uh, helps the gra grammar connect the action as to how and why it's done. And then we have the accusative, which would be the, uh, the, the, the case that definitely refers to um, uh, um, that the object. The, the, so we have subject at the nominative and then the accusative being the kind of the, the, the object or something that object both direct and indirect. So uh, I think I'm getting my grammar right there. I'm pretty sure without looking at my cheat sheet. So when we're talking about Greek, I'm not trying not to lose you in all the Greek mumbo jumbo here, but just very briefly, all I want you to take a notice of is in the, in the third person pronoun for Greek, in the nominative, um, the, the declination of these, that is to say the different forms that these words are found in, carries a, 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 f a specific form that alerts us right away that we're talking about masculine, feminine, or neuter. So in the nominative, which is the, the, the subject of a sentence, in the nominative singular, the masculine is autos. But that same Greek word in the nominative singular for feminine is aute. And then that same word in the nominative neuter singular is auta. So the only difference, the first three letters are the same, A-U-T, A-U-T, A-U-T. It's only the ending that changes the O-S, the, the I'm sorry, the eta there, and the O there. So that's the thing that we need to watch for to help us try to begin to get the sense of what the Greek writers are saying when they're using these different pronouns, should they be translated as he, she, or it. Now, having said that, let's turn to a few passages. All right, let's pull up the first one is John 14, 17. And I've got this, the, the Greek pulled up for you, the interlinear, and we'll see how far we can get with this tonight. I've got a lot of passages. You can see all the tabs across the top of my screen. And I, I don't want to go too long on this, but I want to get a, take a bite out of this. And uh, maybe we'll just do the John passages tonight, and we'll jump into the, the other ones later. Or maybe we'll do half the John ones tonight and the other half two weeks from now. But in John 14, 17, Yeshua, speaking of the Holy Spirit, says, and I'm, I'll, I'll just read, uh, drop down first and read the, um, the, you can see in the English we've got KJV and NASV. NESB. Um, the KJV, I'll read that one first, says, Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it sees him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. And the NSB also has the personal pronouns uh, capitalized. Uh, didn't want to do that. Has the personal pronouns um, as uh, uh, he. And so the point I'm trying to bring up is that most normative Christian translations are going to translate the Greek word that we're going to see here in a moment as a personal pronoun of him. But when we go back up to the Greek, I just want you to see this real quick. Um, when we look up that word that's him, right? It doesn't see him or know him or anything like that. It's the Greek word that we looked at earlier. It's auta. It's strong number 846, which is a, um, a, a root word that simply can be translated as he, she, or it, depending on the antecedent noun. Remember, a pronoun is linked to a noun. So uh, when we look at uh, what type of um, morphology, what 
part of speech, what case, what gender, what number, uh, things like that, we can see by hovering over this particular Greek link here in this tool that I'm using, that this personal possessive pronoun is in the accusative case. It's a neuter third person singular. Notice it's neuter. Go back to that little table I looked at earlier. Neuter on the far right, singular, nominative, meaning the, 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 the subject noun, and it's auto in the neuter. Well, this corresponds with what we're looking at here. It's a pro, it's a, um, it's a possessive, possessive pronoun. It's personal possessive, and it's in the accusative case, right? Meaning, um, I'm sorry, way down here, it's in the accusative, auto, meaning it's, it's the subject. I'm sorry, it's the object. It's not the subject. The accusative is the object. And, um, but notice that it's in the neuter case. Now, why is it in the neuter case? It's because the pronoun in the Greek in the gender must agree with the antecedent noun that the pronoun is, is pointing to. In this case, pneuma is the subject. It's, the not, it's in the accusative, but this spirit is also in the neuter. It's also in the, in the neutral or the neuter. And so um, I believe that that's going to help us understand why a passage like John 14, 17 has he here, but technically... If you look at, say, John 14, 17 out of the Jehovah's Witnesses version, it reads, The Spirit of Truth which the world cannot receive because it neither sees it nor knows it. Notice they translated it instead of sees him or knows him, they translate it neither sees it or knows it. They're saying that because, and they, they tell you uh, in a number of ways over here, the term panuma is in the neuter gender, and therefore neuter pronouns I'm reading from here on this side. The pronouns are used when referring to it. The Greek word has a number of meanings. All of them refer to that which is invisible to human sight and gives evidence of force and motion. But the, the point is, we already know that their theology is that the Holy Spirit is not a he, he's an it. But they're borrowing that theology. They're, from, they're getting some of that theology from the fact that the Greek in, in places is using personal pronouns. I'm trying not to get too technical. Is using personal pronouns that can be translated as either he or it. In this case, here's one case in John 14, 17, where the panuma, which is, it doesn't mean that the panuma himself is neuter. It just means that the Greek word is neuter. In fact, to confuse you a little bit more, the Hebrew word for spirit is ruach, and it's feminine. And the Greek word for ruach, for spirit is pneuma, and it's neuter. And the Latin word for spirit is uh, spiritu, and it's masculine, right? Go figure. Depending on which language you go through, the word spirit can go from feminine to neuter to masculine. So don't get too wrapped up around that um, as to uh, the, 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 you know, the gender of the Holy Spirit. We're just talking about the language itself. But it's worth noting that in other passages, and we'll, I, think, I think I'll leave off with this. It's worth noting that in other passages, so I'll give you this little teaser. In John 15, 26... Yeshua says, when the helper whom I will send to you from the Father comes, the spirit of truth whom the Father uh, sends, he will bear witness concerning me. So in 1426, um, Jesus, speaking to his disciples, speaks of this helper. And this is where we get the, the word um, parakletos that we looked at earlier in the commentary, which most people know is rooted in the Greek word paraklete. This is just simply the... the, the um, the, the, the form that shows up here in the Greek. This um, parakletos is a noun, 
So it's a nominative, remember, nominative versus accusative. Nominative is the noun, the subject, the accusative would be the object. It's, this is a nominative, it's a noun, and it's in the masculine singular. So the, this is the subject because it's a nominative, and this is what Yeshua was talking about. This helper whom I will send you, this paraclete, um, I will send you from the Father, right? He, he will bear witness concerning me. Now we drop down to very bottom of the verse. It says, Ekinos, he. This is a demonstrative pronoun, and it's a nominative, so it's the subject, but it's a masculine singular again. And why is it masculine? Remember, it's that case ending at the very end, the Ekinos, the OS. Why is it in the masculine? In other words, he, because the subject up here, it's linked to the helper. He, yeah, I mean, they're, they're both nominatives, but this demonstrative pronoun, um, which, remember, when we say demonstrative, we could say that if we wanted to, that thing, uh, demonstrative, uh, we could say that will bear witness concerning me. But we, we really have license to say he for two reasons. One, it's a nominative case ending, the OS which is linking to the OS here in um, Parakletos. But secondly, because the um, uh, this uh, uh, he here is in the masculine, not just because of the Greek, but the second reason is because it's pointing back to the subject, which is uh, the helper here. So notice, as I'm closing, I'm just giving you this teacher. Notice um, in that same verse, John 15, 26, the Jehovah's Witness version, they also, if I'm correct here, I'm sorry. They, in in contrast, they, they're gonna they're gonna agree with the traditional Christian version in one passage, but in this case, they say, "When the Helper comes, that I will send you." Remember, the Helper is the, the the Parakletos. When the Helper comes, that I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, which comes from the Father. That one. Notice they say that one will bear witness about me. They don't say he. They say that one, and they say that because. Here's their explanation over here on the right. That one, the Greek demonstrative pronoun, um, ekinos, is in the masculine gender, but it refers to the helper, which is also in the masculine gender. But the reason they say that one instead of saying he is because the um, demonstrative pronoun is typically understood by English as uh, that instead of a personal pronoun like he or, or possessive pronoun like um, she or he or we or something like that. A demonstrative pronoun is kind of removed from the person sometimes. So it's like that or this or kind of feels like um, distant, you know, impersonal. So they opt for the, and they're, they're, there's someone within their bounds to do that by translating it as that one as opposed to the uh, the traditional translations that say he. Same Greek word, ekenos. But in the closing, this is just a teaser for two weeks from now. We're going to find out that um, there is every reason for us to translate some of these personal pronouns that we read in the Greek as um, uh, masculine because of the way the case endings are being presented to us. And so it forms the better theology for us to um, agree with the fact that the personal pronoun is agreeing with the antecedent. And if the antecedent is neuter like spirit, well then, yeah, we could say it. But because we have other passages that refer to um, the spirit of the Father and the Father is in a masculine or something like, like that, or the Lord or Yeshua, um, it'd be better to translate those pronouns, even though they're demonstrative, it'd be better uh, to translate them with he.
I mean, no one's translating them as she, right? Aute. So, uh, so that'll do it for tonight's um, Shema study. Sorry that it was so confusing. A uh, little more technical than I normally uh, provide. Next week we will talk about Hanukkah, so we're not going to be talking about the spirit. But two weeks after, or two weeks from now, which is a week after Hanukkah, we will pick up our study. We'll open all of these tabs again, and we'll just briefly jump through. Um, uh, this uh, Greek lesson here, and then we'll we'll just remind you what we talked about in John, and then what we're going to look at just a, a, a preview. We're going to be looking at the other passages in John, which are uh, parallel to what uh, Yeshua is talking about in John 14, John 15, and John 16. We'll just keep going through those and see how that this Paraclete, this Helper, this one that Yeshua is sending. It's that we have every right to think of him as a he not just as an it. And then perhaps maybe a, three weeks from now, we'll conclude our study with this um, st- uh, quote from another study on the Holy Spirit. And finally, uh, a quote from Romans chapter 8. So that's where we'll end. Okay? But for now, let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name and thank you for the study. Um, thank you for allowing the students to bear with me as I stumbled through the Hebrew and the Greek in the liturgy, as I uh, jumped uh, through some of the difficult uh, Greek grammar. Lord, I don't have a perfect understanding of either of, of any of these ancient languages, but I'm doing my best with the tools that I've got. And I pray that the students will will, will partner with me in that understanding, um, that even though we've got an incomplete uh, understanding and grasp of original languages uh, is evidenced by the way I um, stumble through my liturgy at times. Um, even though uh, we look at some of these the Greek grammar tips and, and it's just all Greek to us, uh, at the end of the day, Lord, what we can be assured of is that as we read through our Bibles, especially in the English, in the language that we can read, that we have been given enough information that we can come to the proper conclusions about who you are and what you're doing in and among us, especially as it relates to the way we comprehend uh, your very nature, your ontological being. Help us to continue to, to press in and wrestle with these and make it a priority. Lord, help us to continue to work through texts such as Romans chapter 14 as it impacts us and uh, understanding who is the weak person, who is our brother, and how can we better begin to relate one another as Jews and Gentiles, both believers and unbelievers, in this walk with God, loyalty to Torah, faithfulness to Messiah, Yeshua, and reliance upon the Holy Spirit. Continue to raise us up during these um, dark days. Continue to protect us during these pandemic days. Give us a voice so that we can be witnesses for those around us, and we will be careful to give you the praise and the glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. 
we have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>